9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another one of our special midweek conversations with somebody we find very, very interesting. We're very fortunate to have today uh, Nick Kristoff, who is, of course, columnist for The New York Times, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, uh, if I were a columnist, I wish I could write like Nick. And what makes that statement all the more disturbing is that I actually am, and I wish I could write like Nick. Uh, very, very good of you to join us today, Nick. Delighted to be with you. Uh, greetings from the family farm in Yamhill, Oregon. Well, you've been writing a lot about Oregon. Maybe we can start there. By the way, I do want to say we, we have a few people, a few of our members who join us for each one of these things, and they're able to ask questions. If you're interested in posing a question, as somebody already has, you go to the Q&A uh, uh, um, uh, icon down at the bottom of the Zoom screen, and, and you can click and pose the question, and I'll get to them in a little bit, uh, but pose them as early as you can. That way, I'll, I'll definitely be assured of, of getting it in there. Anyway, uh, let's just pick up with Oregon, because your last column uh, uh, was, or most recent column, was on Portland, where you're from, and before that, you had, had done a piece on uh, sort of uh, uh, another another dimension of life in, in, in Oregon. Why, why, why are you zeroing in on this besides uh, homesickness? Or, As you know, David, I was spending a lot of time covering humanitarian crises around the world and periodically coming back here to this little, this little town of Yamhill, population 1,000 on a good day. And I just saw a humanitarian crisis unfolding here. And it was um, you know, most striking. Uh, more than a quarter of the kids on my old school bus have died from uh, drugs, alcohol, and suicide. I would have called deaths of despair. And uh, this is just emblematic of what has happened in a lot of working class communities around the country, uh, white, black, and brown. It's been aggravated by the pandemic. Uh, we had new estimates uh, published yesterday that 90,000 Americans, a record, died of overdoses in the 12 months through September. And that's what I you know, see here. And, um, you know, I, as you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time covering international issues. I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and Iraq, but every two weeks, we lose more Americans from drugs, alcohol, and suicide than we lost in 19 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't think that this kind of despair uh, around the U.S. has been covered adequately in ways that will generate some uh, solutions would be a little strong, but policies that mitigate the problems. But actually, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, and it's an incredibly rich topic, I think. Um, I, and by the way, your writing about it has been extremely moving to me, uh, writing about classmates and, and so forth who've been victims of it. But but it 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 sort of is a a point of intersection of you know you could draw a Venn diagram of big stories in the United States right now, um, uh, because it's a it's it's a story about COVID, story about the damage that's been done to us by this pandemic. 
it's a story about public health, the fact that we neglect uh, mental health care, particularly in the United States. It's Absolutely. a story about policing, because be, since we neglect public health, it falls to the police to deal with the victims of this crisis. Um, and, and of course, there's a human story at the, at, the, at the intersection of all three of those. Do you see it in those contexts? Yeah, and I would also add that we neglect children, that, you know, there are all kinds of interventions that we have as a country. Uh, you know, we provide health, universal health care for senior citizens, uh, which is expensive, but not for children, which is cheap. And that's because senior citizens vote and kids don't. And I think that one reason why a lot of our interventions against poverty, against dysfunction have not worked better is that we start too late. And as I mean, there's this growing evidence that the first five years and probably especially the first, uh, you know, the first three years are particularly critical uh, for brain development, for long-term development. And that's a period when we just miss. And I, I just see that around here with old friends and uh, they are going through great difficulties um, and it's probably too late to help some of them, but their young kids are, um, you know, this is the moment to help them. And we're not, we're not helping them. You know, it, it, it's interesting to me and to the degree to which it, it relates also to this COVID story, because for a long time, I felt, you know, we, you, you lose officially 550,000 people. Um, uh, unofficially, the estimates are at least 20% more than that. So, so that puts you at a, at, a, at a death toll in a year that's greater than the death toll that we saw in the great flu of 1918. Um, and of course, everybody knows the numbers about, about comparing it to foreign wars uh, or, or the civil war. And so, you know, there's a huge trauma here. It's not just mask, no mask, vaccination, no vaccination. It's not just, can you get a job back? It seems to me that there's going to be a lingering consequence of this for people for a long time to come, not just the victims of drug overdoses, but depression, insecurity, anxiety. And, and that doesn't seem to be addressed by our political class, even, you know, I think the very engaged and productive Biden administration has just simply not come to that. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. And again, I would emphasize children that there's a lot of worse, uh, a lot of work on how childhood trauma uh, creates long term risks physiologically and psychologically. Um, and when we have so already even before the pandemic, one in seven American kids was living with a parent with substance abuse disorder. And that has clearly increased. And, you know, I've um, I've got a friend who had been uh, clean for two years, and then uh, last April, he overdosed and almost died. He's got two young kids who are now being raised by other people in very chaotic situations. The baby uh, had meth in uh, her system, probably by crawling around the floor and, you know, encountering some. And uh, that, you know, it's not clear. There can be long-term consequences for these kids. We also know that uh, child abuse reports went down very substantially during the pandemic, even as we believe child abuse increased uh, because of stress, et cetera. 
Uh, but that what that signifies is that there are fewer mandatory reporters like teachers and nurses who are seeing kids and able to get those kids help. Uh, so I completely agree that you know only when kids really return to school around the country and begin to interact again with uh, trusted adults are we going to have some sense of the damage that has been done in this period. Yeah, I'd like to, I think, start to move on to some of the questions from the audience. I'll weave some of my own in as we go. I, I see that we've got a bunch of them here. Um, and I'll just read them as they as they as they appear. Uh, and and they're in a no particular order subject wise. So we're going to bounce around a bit. Sure. First one here, China, Russia and Afghanistan. All these three issues are boiling up at the moment. Uh, do you expect uh, Kim Jong-un to use this point to pressure the Biden administration? Uh, do you, and, and just let me add to that. Do you think Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin are, are testing him as well, uh, both in terms of Xi Jinping around Taiwan and, and Putin in terms of uh, uh, Ukraine? Yeah, yes to all of that. Uh, so I think Kim Jong-un will, uh, you know, the, the way he gets leverage, the way Kim Jong-un matters is to uh, test things. And one bit of leverage he 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 kind of needs is to prove that he has the capacity to have a reentry vehicle for a nuclear warhead. Um, it will clearly upset the apple cart if he does uh, such a test, but he would gain so much by uh, by testing it that I think he may at some point, and certainly, you know, whether it's long-term, uh, long-range missile tests or perhaps nuclear tests, I think that he is going to go in that direction and in hopes of being bribed to to uh, to freeze his nuclear program. Um, I think that on Russia, we're already seeing that with Ukraine, uh, the buildup there. I, I sure hope that Putin isn't contemplating actually uh, moving into moving forces into Ukraine, but uh, just the presence of forces there is a test. And, you know, Xi Jinping, we're seeing that all over. And just the degree of nationalism in, in China, the way people talk about the U.S. as a declining power, uh, the cockiness of Xi Jinping makes me worry about the capacity for miscalculation. Well, let me pick up on, on that, and then I'll get back to the next question from the audience, which relates to it. But uh, I spent yesterday, I watched the Senate hearings on the annual threat assessment with the leaders of the intelligence community. Um, uh, the, the, there were House hearings on this today. The day before, of course, the Office of Director of National Intelligence released the annual threat assessment. And I saw it as a kind of a watershed moment because, you know, the, 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 the 21st century as we remember it, the, that chapter is over. The post 9-11 chapter is over. The focus on the Middle East, the focus on foreign violent extremists, we're turning the page. The Afghanistan decision that the president announced, turning the page. And if you read the report or if you listen to yesterday's hearings, it's all about China. Secretary Blinken, when he made his first speech about foreign policy said, you know, it's all about China. And uh, in particular, it's about China ramping up technological capability that will give them economic advantage, but that they will use to harm us economically, and that will be part of kind of this gray zone, ongoing conflict. Um, you know that our friend Sanger writes about a lot, but that is is the centerpiece. This is where 
conflict is going. And so you really sort of got a sense that we're entering into a period, and, and you've spent so much time writing about China, and that's why I'm interested in this, that of 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 US China tech wars, both in terms of trying to get technology, trying to using technology to maintain superiority, using technology against one another. And in that, as a closed society, they have some advantages because they don't care about privacy rights. They can tell companies to do what they want to do. And we, in order to maintain our advantages as an open society, have to take those things into consideration. How do you wrestle with all that? So a couple of things. I mean, first, I I completely agree with the point of your question. I would also note that if we're uh, struggling in a gray zone, I mean, that's an optimistic scenario. <laughs> the right. real, I mean, the nightmare, which I don't think is likely, but I think is plausible, is a conflict over Taiwan or is, uh, something in the South trying to see that just spirals out of control. And that is genuinely possible. You know, in 2001, when we had the spy plane incident off Hainan, uh, that was resolved because Jiang Zemin at that point really cared about U.S.-China relations. If that same Hainan spy plane incident were to happen today, um, it would not be resolved. And those U.S. Uh, military officers would be put on trial. Uh, and so I worry deeply about our capacity to resolve uh, a crisis that is started by cowboys on one side or the other. Now, in the gray zone um, point, uh, you know, I... I think that's right, and that China is testing norms. Um, uh, there was a some years ago there was a incident in Brazil where hackers uh, took out the electrical grid in a in a in a small uh, city, and everybody was kind of wondering why would very sophisticated hackers uh, do who appeared to be from China take on this this small city in Brazil? What had it done to anybody? And, Basically, it was because that Brazilian city had a grid that rather resembled the U.S., and so it was good practice. Um, and um, I would hope that uh, some kind of mutual assured destruction will restrain each side there. Um, I guess I worry partly about how we manage to both stand up to China over what it's doing to Hong Kong, what it's doing in Xinjiang, uh, the threats to, to human rights at home and to, and to Taiwan, while also not demonizing the country and its population without moving in a direction where it's impossible to cooperate with them on issues like climate change, et cetera. Um, and I also would just make the point that, you know, I, in, when we talk about how we compete with China, that's not uh, yeah, obviously it matters our cyber capabilities. It matters, uh, you know, five uh, G and this kind of thing. But, but and Huawei. But maybe most of all, it matters whether we get our um, young people to graduate from high school, whether make them literate and numerate. China started, uh, you know, was starting one university a week uh, for the last decade. Uh, a Baby in Beijing has a longer life expectancy than a baby born in Washington, D.C. Um, if the best way to boost our competitiveness to China is not to fight over intellectual property protections, but to invest in our human capital uh, at home. And I hope we absorb that lesson. I, I might add, just as, as, a, as a, side, a sidebar, that 
getting into a, a tech race with China, uh, where we are testing each other constantly with these attacks, is also dangerous because they can spin out of control just like an attack on the South China Sea, uh, or in South China Sea or in, in, in East China. And that I suspect over the next 10 years, bilateral agreements on tech security will start to play the, and, and multilateral agreements will start to play the same role that nuclear arms deals played in the past 50 years. Uh, yeah. But it's going to be the U.S. and China, and we're going to have to set standards, or Huawei is not going to be sold here, our stuff's not going to be sold there, et cetera. No, that's right. And we, yeah, we have norms that both sides understand in the world of, of, of you know, missiles. We don't really have those norms in the case of, of cyber, for example, and we've got to establish them for everybody's safety. Yeah. Now, one of the questions has to do with how do we disentangle ourselves um, economically from China. You know, when Tony Blinken made his speech, I thought one of the good formations in it, was, and I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but it was kind of, uh, you know, when we when we we have to compete with China when they're a rival, we have to stand up to China when they're an adversary. We've got to cooperate with China when they're 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 a partner, and and that's not the Cold War. We're, right. We have integrated societies. We, we, we can't blow them up without blowing ourselves up. Yeah. And it's going to be a, you know, a huge challenge as we see with rare earth minerals, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, with chips uh, coming from Taiwan. And um, it's, um, you know, I think that we're right to try to build up more capacity that we can access, but boy, that's a slow process. And, you know, you see that with rare earth minerals. One reason that China dominates is not just that it has those natural resources, but it is willing to inflict grave environmental damage on peasants in the area who don't matter politically, whereas the U.S. and Australia are a lot more concerned about uh, toxic uh, residues. And so I think that's going to be a really difficult process. And I think that's going to take a lot of time. OK, shifting the, 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 the focus a little bit here. Um, uh, we on our pods talk a lot. I know we've got another one this afternoon that this is going to come up about COVID in the rest of the world. 5% of the population of the planet has been vaccinated. Um, uh, we have catastrophe in Brazil, which you mentioned earlier, but you know, that's spread to Paraguay. It's spread to Peru. It's uh, threatens Venezuela. It's, it's, uh, Mexico has a catastrophe. Africa hasn't quite had one yet. India has one. Um, and part of the issue there is getting them vaccine. Do you see a big opportunity here for the Biden administration, which has very quickly gotten on top of all of this, to do vaccine diplomacy, um, something that is antithetical to what Trump wanted to do? Um, and, and, and do you think that's a good idea? We have to do it. I mean, it is, you know, we are going to be sitting pretty soon on a huge stockpile of vaccines that aren't being used. And that both looks terrible and is completely unconscionable when people are dying in other countries. It's also against our interest because when you have people in other countries who are getting COVID, that is giving the virus a chance to mutate and develop new strains, which in turn will eventually bounce back and hit us. So we have a uh, you know, our interests as well as our values are at stake here in trying to, uh, to, to provide 
vaccinations around the world. And I think we can do a much, much better job than we have done at that. Right. This is not going to end unless we, we do do that. And, and we've seen that with the Brazilian strains here. What do you think about Biden's uh, decision regarding Afghanistan? Oh boy, that, you know, that pains me, but I think, I think it was probably right. I, you know, we, we just can't stay there forever. And uh, the investment that we make uh, in uh, supporting the Afghan government, uh, those are resources that can make a huge difference in lives elsewhere around the globe. Um, so I think it, I think it, it probably is time to come back. I deeply worry about what is going to happen to women and girls in Afghanistan, but uh, an ongoing war isn't great for women and girls in Afghanistan either. I do think that one lesson that I hope we absorb from the last 20 years in Afghanistan is that the military toolbox is important. It can do a lot of things that other toolboxes can't, but at the end of the day, it, you know, <laughs> it's, it's imperfect. And uh, I wish that we had devoted more resources to the education toolbox and the women's empowerment toolbox. And those are likewise imperfect. And they're not, you know, they're not completely transformative. They take time. But over time, they really do uh, undermine extremist organizations. And you see that. I mean, the, why does the Afghan Taliban throw acid in school girls' faces? Why does the Pakistani Taliban shoot Malala? Because they recognize the threat that comes from educated girls. And I don't think we fully appreciated that uh, when the trade-off between soldiers and schools is for the cost of deploying one soldier for one year, you can start more than 20 and operate more than 20 schools. Um, I wish that we had done more in the education and, uh, and women's empowerment sphere. Right. It was observed long ago, accurately, that investing in the education of girls was the single best thing you can do to uh, promote economic growth in a country. It also has big effects on stability. Uh, and it's a little bit like having the police uh, handle you know, our mental health problem in the United States. It's it, having, having the military handle this is not the answer, but we don't have an effective alternative. And you periodically, you, and you've written eloquently about this there in Africa and elsewhere, we, 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 we have a problem because including some allies will push back and say, well, these are cultural issues. And, and, and unless we shift the focus of the debate to viewing these purely as human rights issues where, you know, there is no cultural pass that you get for treating girls and and women as second-class citizens. We're never going to get this done. Are you optimistic that we can move to a new attitude and new mechanisms? To some degree, I am. I think that we have to do a much better job of not having the people with the loudspeakers saying, educate your, your daughters, not be, you know, Westerners, but people from within that culture. Um, it, with female genital mutilation, for example, which is something that tends to trigger a lot of the, you know, this is our culture arguments. So when the British uh, uh, colonialists tried to ban FGM, that, if anything, created a backlash that, uh, that, that made people feel it was all the more important to preserve culture and, and, and cut daughters. Uh, but there have been efforts by 
uh, well, in Somalia, for example, a woman called Edna Adan, who's, you know, a Muslim, a midwife, that have been pretty effective in trying to reduce it. So I think that that is the, the, the best strategy for trying to address this, uh, this cultural issue. And David, I see so much progress on that gender issue, really for the economic reasons that you mentioned. And, you know, now worldwide, there isn't really a, a gap in education, a gender gap at the elementary school level. There is in high school, there is in, in college, but astonishingly worldwide, there are about as many girls being educated as there are boys. And uh, that was not the case in the past. I think it's uh, a promising direction. Brings to mind a, a column that you did recently on the Olympics uh, and finding ways to put pressure on the Chinese without, you know, hurting ourselves or doing something ineffective in the in the, in the balance. Um, you you suggested that political leaders do not participate in the Beijing 2022 Olympics. That uh, um, companies don't participate. Do you see that kind of an approach as being something? also effective in increasing leverage on, on things like women's issues? In general, I'm a believer in engagement, including engagement with, you know, with odious countries and then having leaders, though not pull punches, but uh, speak out, uh, you know, meet with marginalized groups, et cetera. Uh, so the Olympics, I think, is a somewhat special case where I think Xi Jinping is really using them for his own legitimacy. And I think the attendance of uh, leaders would be, you know, would, would help Xi more than they would help others. But, um, you know, in general, I, I would like to have business leaders and political leaders um, go to countries that are oppressive and just work very hard not to burnish uh, leaders and not to boost oppression, but to speak out about uh, these kinds of issues. When, you know, um, artists, for example, have been uh, debating whether to go to Saudi Arabia, whether they're supporting MBS, if they do that, you know, my, uh, my view is that they should go and then at every concert uh, talk about uh, you know, women's rights leaders who were in prison, who were being tortured, and uh, use that to put pressure on the government rather than just staying away, which I think doesn't accomplish all that much. Uh, excellent point. Um, we've got just a couple of minutes here, and some of these are circling back. One of the questions is about the, uh, the threat posed by North Korea, but um, I think you addressed that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. Uh, one asks why Putin is doing what he's doing in Ukraine. What do, what do you think his objective is? His, what do you think his end game is? I mean, I think he is testing the administration. I think he's trying to punish uh, Biden and punish uh, Ukraine. I think that there's also something to be said for Putin in testing uh, NATO. Uh, not, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, Ukraine is, is that's not a, uh, uh, NATO issue. But in general, I think he's trying to make NATO countries wonder uh, about what he might do. And uh, one of the real vulnerabilities for NATO is that Article 5, uh, you know, which would the, the, the collective response uh, clause, there's a lot of doubt about how real that is. And if I were Putin, I would, I would push that. Uh, I would, you know, maybe I would 
put troops on the border of Estonia and make countries in Western Europe think that they really want to risk a war over Estonia. Uh, and um, I don't, you know, I wouldn't, if I were him, I wouldn't actually try to create a war, but I think that's useful for him to try to make Western powers worry about how much they really want a conflict about the capacity he can, you know, Russia doesn't really matter in non-military ways so much anymore. It's a, you know, it's not a very relevant economic country. It is still very relevant militarily. And so those forces are a tool that he can use to make us all talk about him right now. And I think that may be part of what he's doing. I hope that's all that he's doing, that he's not actually thinking about, about moving into Ukraine in a, in a bigger way. Um, well, certainly he's had a pattern of doing those things in Georgia and Crimea before. And, uh, but, but you're right. I think testing the theory of Article 5 would be something that, that could really shake NATO if it was revealed that there is, there is doubt there. Um, but, you know, there's a similar situation, which relates to the last question that we've got here, uh, with regard to Taiwan. Um, you know, Richard Haas, the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, wrote this thing, we need strategic clarity with Taiwan. Um, and my response to that is, no, we don't. Because strategic clarity will reveal that it is unlikely that the United States is going to get into a big shooting war with China over Taiwan. And of course, China wants to demonstrate or, you know, that that's the case, that this is, you know, they're near abroad, they're going to do what they want to do there. Uh, do, you, do you think Xi Jinping is going to push that? So I agree with you that we're better off with strategic ambiguity than with strategic clarity. And uh, that is uh, partly because I think that uh, a lot of Chinese see the entire world through this prism of suspicion, this historical lens in which the outside world is always trying to dismember the country. And I think that the risk is that that would be seen as a provocation and would increase the likelihood of China doing something uh, threatening rather than reduce it. And I guess I say that partly because as I see it, the big risk is not that tomorrow China goes and all out, you know, stages an invasion of Taiwan. I think rather it's what, what China would do is that it would um, snip undersea cables uh, carrying the internet to Taiwan. It would uh, declare a naval quarantine uh, and says, look, you all agree that Taiwan is part of China. We're just going to uh, uh, check shipping to make sure that there are no missiles being sent to Taiwan in ways that would be devastating to Taiwan's economy and confidence, but strategic clarity doesn't really help with that kind of issue. You know, what is it? What do we, how do we respond in that case? And so I don't think it helps. I think it increases the risk of a strategic clarity, I think increases the risk of problems. You know, I don't think that a conflict is, I don't think that Xi Jinping is going to do anything really stupid around Taiwan in the next few years. Uh, partly, I think that's because I think Taiwan is gonna be quite careful in managing the issues, but I fear that I could be wrong. And you know, there is some, some percentage risk that uh, she really does take uh, bold steps like cutting it undersea cables, like a uh, quarantine, um, like a major cyber attack uh, and, or an attack on one of Taiwan's outlying islands. Uh, 
that, that you know, that all that could escalate very quickly. You have two minutes for one more question. Somebody's popped in one more question. Is that, do you have two minutes? Yeah. No? Yes. Okay. Um, it's uh, totally off the subjects that we've been on here. Basically, it's what, so what role can either the government or corporate media play in de-indoctrinating the Q conspiracists? I'm, I'm not going to read the whole question. I'm just going to sort of pick up from that and, and ask, you know, we, we live in this extraordinary moment where there are, you know, sort of two media ecosystems and, you know, one of them doesn't actually believe in history or truth or math. Um, and it seems sort of impenetrable. How do you th- how do you think that plays out? Years ago, a media uh, theorist, uh, Nicholas Negroponte, said that we were going to internet was going to bring us a a uh, a product that he called the Daily Me, and well, now we all have the Daily Me, and I find that you know here in in rural Oregon, for example, I have a lot of friends who think that uh, COVID is a hoax who think that the vaccine is an effort by Bill Gates to plant uh, chips in their brains. And I just find it so hard to understand how these absurd ideas spread. Uh, I don't think that there's frankly much that the New York Times or that a president can do to address this. I think it helps a little bit when you get uh, some trusted conservatives or, or cultural figures who speak out. Um, I don't think it changes minds overnight. I think it does seed a certain amount of doubt. I think that what seems to me to make a difference is when people post ridiculous things on Facebook and their friends push back gently and don't call them idiots, but say, you know, do you really think that? And then cite some bit of contrary evidence and begin to raise doubts in, in little ways. Some of my friends, that seems to be somewhat effective, but I don't know that there is anything nationally that can really easily address this problem. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 it is a big problem, and it, and it is one that will be with us for a while. Perhaps at some point in the future, you'll come back again, and you'll talk to us again about that and all these other things. We're extremely grateful for your taking the time uh, to join us here today and to answer some of the questions from some of our members. Uh, I'm sure that our audience at large will appreciate that as well. Uh, for those of you who are listening definitely keep following Nick's writings uh, at the New York Times. He's not only a, uh, an important uh, uh, voice of conscience and sort of strategy on a lot of issues, but unlike a lot of columnists, he's a reporter. And when you read Nick's columns, there are facts there and there are new stories. And I consider that to be extraordinarily uh, valuable. Um, for those of you who are interested in what else we've got coming up, um, our, our regular next broadcast. We're going to have uh, our old friend, uh, also Pulitzer Prize winner, Laurie Garrett and Dr. Kavita Patel back talking about where we are in the COVID crisis and a lot of other very interesting stuff coming up. Go to the dsrnetwork.com to uh, get more information on that. And if you click membership and want to be a member, um, do that too. So thank you very much, Nick. Thank you everybody for listening and uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. Good to be with you. Bye-bye.